Welcome to Food and Loathing, the official podcast of Santa Claus, because how do you think he got so fat? And honestly, if Santa has a problem with us saying that, he should feel free to write me a letter, even up the score a bit after all those I've written him over the years. (laughs) I'm your host, Al Mancini, and the truth is I'm actually good with Santa because I've gotten everything I wanted this year. I get to work with the coolest producer in the podcast world, Rich Johnson, each and and every week. I also eat out a lot at some of the best restaurants in the world, and I get to speak to some really cool people and share it with you. But if there's one big ticket item that Santa has delivered to me this year, it's my interview with Jose Andreas or Andreas. Andreas. What should you say, Rich? Andreas. Andreas. Yeah. I just feel like I mispronounce everybody's name these days. Anyway, um, (laughs) the big ticket item this year, my interview with Jose Andres, the second half of which we will be sharing with you in just a few moments. And because we have that interview, which is going to take up a large chunk of this episode, Rich and I are going to go it alone this week without our co-host. Rich, how are you feeling about the two-man show? I somehow am going to get through it because you will hold my hand all the way. I'm going to try. Okay, so if you're a regular listener, you know that we always begin this thing with talking about where we've been over the past week. So, Rich, what you got for me and our listeners? Not a ton of stuff, but, you know, I am the the man of simple tastes. So I did took my simple tastes on an early morning drive over to Red Rock for a big breakfast. Now, one of the challenges a lot of local properties have had uh, over the pandemic and coming back is keeping at least one food outlet open 24 hours traditionally it's the american style place the coffee shop uh, the diner and and a big shout out to station casinos for not only keeping the lucky penny at red rock open all night but for making it the lucky penny they appropriated that brand that they started during their short-lived stay at palms and i I really loved it at palms especially the turkey dinner at at one or two in the afternoon complete with cranberry sauce that is so right out of the can the rib marks are still on the side (laughs) Just like my mom used to make. <laughs> yes, indeed. And uh, my usual breakfast, though, was spot on. Three eggs over medium, sausage, sometimes I go with the bacon, toast, perfect hash browns and serviceable coffee. And afterwards, I pick up uh, the price uh, of the video. It was about 20 24 bucks for all that, a little less. Oh, 24 with tip, because I tip well. I've learned my lesson on this show. And afterwards, <laughs> I picked up the price of breakfast at Video Poker. So it was a win-win Saturday morning. There you go, man. And I, I love serviceable coffee. You're getting um you're getting very diplomatic. I can tell you spent some <laughs> no. time in Washington, DC there. <laughs> no, if it was awful coffee, I'd say awful coffee. But it you know, it, it it's not, you know, a, a discreet artisanal free range fair trade pour over thing. It's out of the, the urn, but it 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 was strong and that's the thing. Because I drink it black, no sugar, so it's gotta stand on its own. I love your shout out to the old lucky penny at the palms. You and I actually recorded a podcast segment with um, Steve Heitner there. Yeah. And I do miss that place as well. But they, they, they changed not only the name, but they, they brought a little of the concept over to uh, Red Rock. And I believe their plan has been to change all their coffee shops at the station casinos to lucky penny. So we'll see. I think Santa Fe station up on I on uh, us 95 is the same thing. We'll see about the others as they get it's, back. Yeah, in the- 
there are two of them. Um, I did a story on it for the RJ probably about a year ago at this point. Actually, you can see a video of me. I'm in with the chef and the lucky penny at Red Rock cooking. I'm not cooking. I'm watching the chef cook. <laughs> yes. But over on the RJ Facebook page, we did a lot about that about a year ago and them rebranding. So, um, yes, shout out to my old employers. You can oh, find yeah. some video of me in the kitchen there. <laughs> and speaking of kitchens, you know, we've done a lot of little things in the, in the house. I had some short ribs in the in the uh, freezer the boneless ones and i had half a jar of kimchi left i said kimchi braised short ribs we put in onion we put in carrots a little salt and pepper uh i don't think any other spice and then the kimchi in there braised about an hour and a half in the instant pot and man it turned out great nice nice kimchi kick the fall off your uh, teeth uh, uh meat it was great you're not exactly that man of simple taste you keep bragging about being yeah. man that is not quite a simple taste <laughs> all right the, the the other big at home, stay at home kitchen adventure uh watching the raiders bears uh, yesterday as we tape this and coming up as uh, seahawks uh, my seahawks and and the washington football team even though i lived in washington for 23 years and had a couple of really nice uh, bandwagon times watching the Redskins back in the early 90s, uh, the Washington football team and the 20-year decline under Daniel Snyder. Don't get me started on that. I'll have to start a whole other podcast for that. It's like you're talking another language know, to me right I now. Know, this is like if I were to, I mean, I don't even know. But seriously. <laughs> mostly that's just an excuse to make and eat buffalo wings. I've, I've never been to Buffalo. That's my language. There, there you I go. You like that. Too. Yeah. You, you remember it was six, seven years ago for a very short time, like not even six months, the Anchor Bar, the famous place in Buffalo, New York, that is the home of Buffalo Wings. They had an outlet in the Venetian food court. And I got over there, and I am proud to say that uh, I do a pretty authentic job. Frank's Red Hot, butter, vinegar. Sometimes I toss in a little ketchup for a touch of thickness and sweetness, but otherwise fairly true to the real recipe i do not have the kitchen for deep frying so my cuisinart toaster oven does a very good air fry toss the naked wings in a little canola uh, canola oil let them rip for about 30 minutes i do have to turn them once which is a bit of a pain but it's worth it they come out nice and crispy they're ready for the sauce i also usually make my own blue cheese dressing mayo a lot of blue cheese a touch of vinegar and please, celery, none of that carrot stick bullshit, none of that ranch dressing bullshit. Even though I've never been to Buffalo, I try to stay true to the anchor bar. You are a purist, my friend. Yes. Most importantly, did you win any money on the games? Uh, I don't bet games. I tried when I first Didn't got I here. Used to be on your betting podcast before? Yeah, it was, it was you know, theoretical betting for me. Our producer, who bet every basketball game and every football game, uh, is the thing. But I found I just hated the losses far more than i like the wins so give me video I'm, i've been playing a lot of video poker lately and i'll still throw some in the slot machine and one of these days i'll get back to the pie gal poker table i'll take you to that and i've we'll, never played that so we'll, we'll, we, we should do that we'll i've been itching to roll some dice lately i've not rolled dice since before covid haven't played poker since before yeah, covid yeah. um I'm, so i need to get back to both of those tables i had a nephew come to and... town who really wanted to do poker so i did that for the first time in a couple of years back over the summer and had a good time and i lasted about 45 minutes or so with my hundred bucks but uh but you're talking about dice there are two things in this world i cannot understand as much as i try dice and rugby 
<laughs> I can grasp cricket. I've been to cricket in London. I, I kind of enjoy watching Indian cricket on my illegal uh, VPN TV, but I still can't grasp rugby, and I have no idea when to pass or don't pass or come or don't come. <laughs> At least in, in dice terms, well, that, let's put it that way. Uh, we're not going to get into no, addressing please. that issue Sorry. of you and whether you know when to come and not come. Um, <laughs> okay, moving on, back to food. I didn't eat out much this week. My wife and I had a late lunch or early dinner or whatever. We were hungry. We went to Honey Salt. Just a few dishes. We did the savory monkey bread, some of those turkey meatballs that I love so much, and we split the brick chicken. Solid as always. Um, I will bring this up. Do you like it when you tell people that you're going to um, split an entree and they they are kind enough without you asking to separate it out be in the kitchen oh and bring yeah it on two plates that'll that'll uh, kick up the tip right there yeah and they did that um I, look honey salt's great yeah you know, everything about that great. place is great the only time we don't like that is because sue hates it we'll split a steak once in a while yeah but when we they know we're splitting it they'll slice it right they'll yeah. cut it up and she hates a sliced steak she likes to cut into her own steak so um i respect I that it's a weird thing. So no, at this point, I always tell them, please don't slice your steak. Because, <laughs> you know, they're trying to be nice. And that just pisses her off. Yeah. Um, you know, we all have our pet peeves. My big night out was a media dinner at Michael Mina Bellagio. Chef Raj Dixit took over the kitchen about six months ago. He came from the Mina Group's former flagship, Michael Mina San Francisco. That restaurant has been converted into Estiatoria Ornos. I feel like at this point we need a scorecard. Yeah. Um, Ornos is, of course, a collaboration with two local Vegas chefs. What this all means, everything I've just laid out, is that the Mina Group's global culinary empire, within that empire, the Bellagio restaurant is now the only eponymous Michael Mina restaurant. It's the only one that is just called Michael Mina. Yeah. Not something by Michael Mina, something with Michael Mina. And that's kind of a big deal, right? I mean, the, the empire is now, the, the, the flagship is only here in Las Vegas. So what's Chef Raj doing at the gorgeous space off of the Bellagio Conservatory? I asked him before we sat down to dinner. Here's a bit of our conversation. I think it's a continuation of what the chef previously to me that ran this room was working on. It was obviously a fish house, but he was incorporating a lot of vegetables into the whole format. So you had great, you know, you had great fish, whole fish, and you had great vegetable tasting menus. I think the difference is I'm gonna revert and do great fish tasting menus with great vegetables. So a little bit of just kind of, we go backwards to get, get some progress again in this room. Um, is it gonna be tasting menu focused? Is that the way to come here? Because, you know, we recently dined at the Cirque, which had transformed to an only tasting menu okay. situation. Are you still doing a la carte? Can I still come in for a small bite? Can Absolutely. I still get the caviar cart only if I yeah. want that? Um, so uh, this restaurant has such an energy about it, it's never gonna be tasting menu only. Uh, you're gonna have a variety of tasting menus to shift into, but a la carte is everyone's experience. And obviously with Bellagio, it's um, you're at a show, you're dining, there's a business deal. You wanna make sure you can offer um, just a wide array of, of, of just what we do here um, all the time. And, and this restaurant, I think, um, provides that uh, and everyone can still come in for the caviar parfait at the bar of glass of champagne and vodka so yeah I mean that's that's kind of one of the things you know that you have to have that caviar parfait it's not going away anytime soon <laughs> hopefully we can we can hold it to the level and, and have more more caviar on each of them everybody's gonna ask me what about lobster pot pie that's gonna that's gonna stay I think uh, I think chef Mina kind of um, has built a brand around that that dish um, for me, I think we're going to offer a little bit different where it won't be a pot pie, but you might get something like 
a hand pie where you get like a, a New England clam chowder pie or you might get a pativier which might go into sturgeon or spring salmon or, or black cod and um, take a little bit of a tip from like a game approach with a pativier versus uh, a traditional you know rustic pot pie okay um I want to touch again on the idea of this being now the only flagship. And it's kind of interesting that a couple of Vegas guys went out and took over the other flagship. It took, not took over, but uh, moved in, partnered on the other flagship. So what does that signify about how important the Las Vegas market is to the MENA Group, which is such a globally recognized brand? So Chef MENA moved the entire corporate offices here. There's a lot of, of activity happening in San Francisco. I'm honored to actually hold the, the hell in this kitchen because there's been so many great chefs that have, have ran it. Everyone from Mark LaRusso, um, you know, Anthony Amoroso, Ben Jenkins, you know, Nick, all, Nick Squared, all the Nicks and, <laughs> and all the chefs that I've ever held a post here. Um, I think for me, it was just, wow, it was, it, it, it's, I'm still trying to understand the legend that is this iconic space. Um, definitely an institution. Bellagio has been amazing with the support to kind of um, just get, get this restaurant a renaissance again. Looking out the window behind you, we've got the Christmas trees up in the Bellagio Conservatory. My wife calls that her happy place. Like, no matter what's going on in our lives, she'll say, just take me to Bellagio and let's walk through the conservatory, and she gets in a good mood. Talk about the atmosphere of walking through that every day at work. It, it's wild. I think, you know, last month it was like a, we were Alice in Wonderland, and it was, it was wild game season, right? Um, now we're in the winter, and it's, it's a winter wonderland. Um, the neat thing about Bellagio for me is the network of chefs that are in, um, not only in this property, but are in the other properties too, because there's so much talent that I'm just now starting to discover that I'm not generally used to, um, just the hospitality in other cities like New York and San Francisco. It's a really, really unique place to be in Las Vegas. And Bellagio specific, they've been really great in kind of handing over the keys and um, just support. Um, and it's a beautiful, beautiful, I mean, how can you complain when you have the fountains when you leave work every day, right? Yeah, you can't. You can't complain about being in this building. I mean, I'm sure people do, but I don't get it. I always have fun when I'm here. Um, how about Las Vegas as a whole? Have you had a chance to get out and meet other chefs? That's always important to me. I know that the MENA group has a strong presence here. A lot of my good friends are either present or recent you know, employees of the MENA group. So are you out networking, hanging out, checking out the scene, or are you just head down in the kitchen here? I'm, I'm trying to, to, to network uh, and get out there. I'm limited on that, abil uh, on that ability to do it, but there have been some really, really great chefs um, that have been supportive of, 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 of the move and, and what we're doing here and uh, of the MENA group. Um, there's a couple kitchens that we can give shout outs to because I, I want to go eat at these these places. Um, definitely, I think uh, we talked about Esther's Kitchen. James Trees is amazing. He's been a huge fan and a huge supporter. Um, Brian over there. Uh, I, I, Brian I, Howard at Sparrow Wolf. Brian Howard at Wolf. Everybody tells me that they wanted to book me to, to take me over there and I just can't do it. I don't have the time. I'm not sure when I want to, but I will get out there, Brian. Trust me. <laughs> Um, and just the whole media group communities, like, I mean, all of them are doing like little things in little pockets around here. And um, I had a great meal just off Spring Mountain and um, just some great dim sum. And um, I was over at Edo Tapas and had a great meal. The chef over there, he was awesome. But I think those are a couple, couple of the highlights I've had in my, my short time here. Well, cool. Well, welcome to town. Please tell Chef Mina and David Varley and all my friends in the Mina group that I said hi. Absolutely. Cheers. Thank you so much for having me. I can't wait to eat. Let's do it. 
I've never met Michael Mina. I've seen him on TV a few times. I've been to a couple of his places, loved it to, to death. Uh, but the idea that he's not worried about slapping his name over everything like uh, uh, an English ex-soccer uh, player, chef we have all heard of on 18 different primetime TV shows, tells me that uh, he's pretty secure in his own self. He knows his empire is his. He doesn't need to have everybody re- be reminded of it every five seconds. Now, the MENA Group is um, one of the best organizations that, from from my vantage point, I haven't worked for them. I don't know what it's like to work for them, but you know they train their people in house. They um they promote from within usually um, the vast majority of times, and and he shares the spotlight with his executive chefs. Michael is thrilled to have his local executive chefs go on TV and go on the radio and talk and and put their own their own um, touches on each restaurant. And I think that's why they're all so great. Um, as far as the meal that I had the other night, I want to say it was excellent. Most noticeable thing about it was the chef's dedication to using every piece of each fish. Uh, and it's something we hear a lot about in the pork world or in the cow world, wow. you know, kind of snout to tail. Um, but he's really all about using that. There are no like throwaway cuts on a piece of fish, according to Chef Raj. Uh, for example, we had a smoked sturgeon croquette topped with sturgeon caviar. One of the courses paired compachi, um, yellowtail. Um, there was the crudo and then also the collar on the same plate. Um, of course, all the seafood is uh, is sustainable, but this idea of using it all, even the lesser cuts, is something this chef is really passionate about. So that that's exciting to me. Okay, enough of this. It's time for more Jose. Coming up, the second half of my meal in conversation with the great Jose Andres. In our last episode, we spoke about some of the chef's travels during the pandemic, the people he met and assisted, the heroes he witnessed, the meals he shared, the stories and the traditions. We also spoke about how he lost weight. There's a lot of good stuff in part one, so go back and listen to that if you haven't already. In part two, we touch on a lot more topics. We even get into politics at one point. I mean, I can't be the only person who would be interested in whether the chef would ever run for office, can I? Um, But we started off with the discussion of tomatoes. Some people want to know if it's a fruit or a vegetable. In my case, I wasn't sure if it was a vegetable or a cow. In my defense, it was dark, and Bizarre Meat team are culinary magicians. This... (laughs) is food and loathing. You are unusual in the fact that you are someone who feeds both the the wealthiest and most powerful people on the planet and they dine in your restaurants and they know you and they love you and you feed the people people when they are at their most vulnerable and their most powerless. There aren't a lot of people who do both of those things and who see who interact with both of those groups of people and both of those types of people on a regular basis. What have you learned from that? Are we all the same deep down? Are we all the same when when we're receiving hospitality? This is a good a good question and and an important one in, in, in so many ways. I always say that I'm a chef that feeds the few, but I'm a, I'm a chef that I learned I need to be there also for feeding the many. And in this pandemic, we've seen that many, many chefs in the food industry, they put aside their aprons in the fancy restaurants and they put themselves at the service of helping others. Marcus Samuelson, watching him doing the work he did in Bronx mm-hmm. and in New Jersey. Not anymore the Marcus Samuelson of the Food Network, not anymore the Marcus Samuelson 
of the top restaurants that he's been one of the most creative chefs in America from the days he used to do his high-end Swedish dash Ethiopian dash mm-hmm. the many things this guy has in his blood um, he was there feeding the forgotten communities in the same places he had restaurants wow or Tom Colicchio going to the hill trying to help uh, pass bills so the restaurant community could be supported through different incentives and uh, this is fascinating um, and I can keep telling you stories of many people in our industry that they put aside their business and and they try and so so I believe that we realize in this pandemic that yes chefs like us we feed the few but chefs like us we uh, we should and we must be there to feed the many right because we cannot be in the food business and only feed the few we have the voice, we have the knowledge, we have the connections in our communities to understand that if we convince Congress to pass the right bills, hunger is something like in America should never happen ever again, where children should be fed in America, period, because we cannot end hunger in Africa if first we don't end hunger in America. Right. And when we realize the power that we have by trying to come up with smart solutions to solve problems that they are highly solvable. That they are highly solvable if we put the right effort, the right investment. When we see that our voice should be more than a voice, but is the experience that we bring to Congress, the experience we bring to find solutions in moments of desperation and moments of mayhem, this is powerful. So... I'm very happy to feed the few. I'm very happy to feed you caviar and foie gras with it now. Mm-hmm. I don't think one thing goes against the other. At the same time, I'm very happy to say that I love to try to be there learning and giving voice to the voiceless and use my experience to try to say and knocking in the right doors to say if hunger is happening in America is because we are not putting at the disposal of the people at the all the tools we have to end hunger, period. Right. We must be there. I'm happy I'm there. Not successfully, because if I was successful, we wouldn't have children still going hungry today in America. Forget about other parts of the world. But that's why I, I like not to sit on, on, a, on a chair in my fancy restaurant and use celebrate success, whatever that means. But to say we must do better because we have to do better. Because I cannot have a successful restaurant, three-star Michelin, one day. And in my neighborhood, in my city, having people that don't know what to put on the table that day for dinner. One thing is not against the other. I think both can live and are living together. But we cannot forget that. And me, I'm trying not to forget that. No, and and you're reminding other people of it, which I think is just as important. The, The consciousness you raise and getting all of us involved, hopefully to some degree, just as important as the work you're doing. By the way, Chef Andreas right now is feeding me steak tartare on lettuce, which is beautiful. Um, it's funny you say steak because if you look at is it... Is this the tomato tartare? Well, we don't have a lot of light right now. We are in this corner of the bazaar uh, meat at the Sahara and because it's a very noisy out there. Actually, it's uh, Tuesday, Wednesday night and we are doing very well. Very happy. But what you're having here is a, a tomato tartare. Okay. It and is, I have had this before. And I remember thinking I thought it was steak the last The same time. ingredients of a beef, beef tartare, same ingredients, 
But what you are having here is only with tomato, which is tomato that is preserved, is cooked, and we chop it. And when you look at mix, and if I bring you the same one made with beef, only looking at it, you will have a very hard time knowing which one is tomato and which one is beef. Yeah. So when you say beef, I get it because that's what we're trying to achieve, and this is a big message. <laughs> Can we make a great tartare that everybody knows tradition has been with beef? out of a vegetable in this case out of a fruit in this case out of tomato and the answer is yes and I hope yeah. you like it and now of course people making fun of me that I can't tell steak from tomato but that's okay because this is so beautifully seasoned and so wonderful and and what I like is that you are actually using a tomato to create an amazing tartare as opposed to using an artificial meat right and something that that replicates beef you are simply paying respect to the vegetable itself or the fruit yeah. is it yeah but what you well technically well we need to go back to history because we need to understand that the Supreme Court rule that um, tomato was actually a vegetable and not a fruit. Can you believe that the Supreme Court in the United <laughs> States of America rule, which was was was, uh, was uh, something Hayden versus? It's a bill that has been fairly studied and had to do with taxes. Where was this New Jersey importer that? was not paying taxes on tomatoes because he was cataloging the tomatoes as fruit. When you was were importing fruits from the colonies, you were not paying any taxes. Um, on paper, he was right because botanically, tomato is a fruit. Right. But then the Supreme Court ruled that no, the way everybody eats tomato is as a vegetable. <laughs> Therefore, he was ruled that he had to pay taxes on the tomato imports he was having from the colonies. I spent three years in law school and I never heard that case before. So no. that, yeah, I, I love sitting with you. I learned so much. Um, but, but, but you mentioned about food and, and beef. Let me tell you what's happening because I'm going to be supporting. Uh, we need to feed 9 million people in 10, 10 20 years will be 9 million people in planet Earth. And we see all the demands that meat production have. I don't believe um, we need to make uh, people that like meat, like me, and I know like you, sinners because we like meat. What we need to be doing is start eating the right quantity of meat and make sure the way we produce it is not something negative with the land and the environment. And I think everything is highly doable. We can feed the world meat and in the process making sure that we don't degrade uh, our lands and our water and polluting everything in the process. And the animals can be raised. If, if instead of having animal protein at 21 meals a week, three meals a day, seven days a week, like so many Americans do, if we cut that in half or less, we would need to produce fewer animal products. Let, let me tell you, we will be healthier. And the, the animals would live better lives because we would not need these atrocious factory farms. When I eat a cow in your restaurant, I'm pretty sure that cow lived a pretty nice life. And I don't feel bad about it. The same for the foie gras. I don't like getting things from a supermarket, ground beef, and using that to make tacos at home. I feel pretty Agreed. bad about that. But let me tell you, what's happening is that is companies that they've been investing in the last years in producing a new meat protein that will grow in a lab. And I know this is going to be highly controversial. But me, I came to realize that it's not any different than the hot dogs we eat, that mm -hmm. we don't even know where the meat came from. Yeah. And we all seem to like it. 
or the surimi in the crab sticks, in the fake crab, we call it, which is actually delicious. I remember my mom giving me first time a crab stick, and she will make these crab sticks with pink sauce, with mayonnaise and ketchup and brandy and black pepper and a little bit. And they were delicious. And, and we don't think about it, but now those crab sticks are everywhere, yeah. in every place. And it's fine. It's another <laughs> way to eat a fish protein that is actually okay. Yeah. You go so, to a sushi restaurant and you'll get that. I mean, <laughs> so now we need to be open because it's going to be companies that they're going to be producing meats and or fish out of vegetables, which this is very forward-thinking, but we're going to see companies that are going to produce meat and fish out of cells that come from living animals, but all of a sudden you only need one animal to produce hundreds of thousands of kilos of meat. That's the future. It's already happening. will happen. And this will bring less pressure to the people producing meat and pork and chicken. And hopefully making sure that in the process of feeding America and feeding the world, we don't degrade the water and we don't pollute the lands where we are producing the foods that on paper are supposed to make us healthy and, and holy. And I think this is going to be... Uh, I'm a guy I'm very pragmatic. It's not black or white. It's a rainbow. It's an in-between. Well, we need to make sure that we make smart decisions, but at the same time, we need to know that we cannot be finger-pointing at the problems that we face in the world to others. We all have a role to play. When people say the fast food companies are the reason of obesity in America, I say this is a very simple game of, of blame. Those fast food companies probably have their part of responsibility in obesity in America. But it's something I call self-responsibility, is that every one of us has a role to play in making sure our decisions is what shapes the future, how we fit America healthier, better, enjoying it, having a blast, yeah. but in a pragmatic way. We cannot keep finger-pointing at others for the issues we face. We all need to take a little responsibility in the way we eat, in the way we feed our families, and in the process, in the way we can shape the future of the world where feeding the world is is an agent of change for good and not an agent of change for bad. So are you at the point yet where you would use a product like Impossible in your restaurants? I have no problem with that. I'm you mentioned Marcus Samuelson. I saw him less than a week ago and he was feeding me the Impossible Chicken Nuggets, um, which was amazing to me. And I'm sorry to cut you off, but you know it was astounding because you know he's known for making these great chicken sandwiches, but he has those Impossible Nuggets on his menu here in Las Vegas because he wants to give that option to people that want to not always have a chicken when they go to his place. I, I, again, I'm, I'm, uh, myself, I'm, you're going to see me involved. I've been investing in some companies here and there um, um, that supporting that that doesn't mean you are not supporting farmers it's all the contrary mm -hmm. I'm here to say we need to give more support to rural America that right now we are not we need to make sure that we don't you know was Niemens Bill Neiman, legendary Niemens through his run, Neiman's Ranch, he showed us there was a better way to be producing beef. There was a better way to produce meat. Mm -hmm. Actually, his wife, who's a vegetarian, she wrote a book that the name of the book is On Defense of Beef. 
<laughs> really? And she made the main amazing case of why animals are very important to make sure that our prairies, our grasslands are healthier and better. A vegetarian. <laughs> yeah. That she does, and I believe her. She doesn't do it because her husband makes her his money out of a meat company. She argue of why in the right amount, in the right way, is important. So you see, we're in a moment that seems that everything is black and white. Mm. Or you are this, uh, seems you are against that. That because you support something means you are the enemy of the other. No. I think we need to be creating a world where everybody should have their own decisions. You may be vegetarian, you may be a pescatarian, you may eat more fish, more meat, more vegetables. But one is not against the other. I do believe we can all be what we want to be without a fight. And making sure it's room for everybody to enjoy their lives how they want it. But making sure that everybody does their part in making sure that our food ways, our food traditions, and the way we produce food and feed the world... Uh, enriches the world, doesn't make the world poorer. You know, what you just said almost answers perfectly one of the questions that I had written out for you, and that is um, that, you know, we live in a world right now that is probably more politically charged than it's ever been. People get angry at their best friends because they don't agree on things. You wade headfirst into some of the most difficult difficult questions of our day and yet you do it in a way that doesn't seem nobody seems to hate you the way we almost hate our best friends if they don't agree with us on everything and i believe maybe the reason is what you just laid out is that you can be for things without necessarily being against everybody who has a different point of view that's pretty rare these days well i i i keep mentioning with the people when I became American, I realized that those three wars probably is one of the reasons I was the happiest of joining this country as an American citizen. With the people has many readings. With the people is that together we're going to move forward. With the people means that I'm not going to be imposing on others my beliefs. Mm-hmm. If anything, I'm going to try to convince others of why maybe some of my beliefs, because cannot be everyone of my beliefs is better than yours. And hopefully I will be respectful enough and listening enough and giving voice to others that they can tell me how they see things from the other side. And where all of the time people that don't think like me, they are not my enemies, but people that don't think like me are the people that are helping me enrich my, my beliefs, my knowledge, and then helps me as I hope I will help them have a more holistic 360 degree view of every issue. This is what we need to all to believe, I believe. Let's, do long, let's believe in longer tables, no higher walls. Let's believe in respect. And let's believe that we don't know everything. Mm-hmm. And that we are living in a world that is forever changing at the very quick pace. And that knowledge is key to shape our views of everything. And I learned that as more pragmatic I am and more in the center I am of things is a way I can be truthful to my beliefs, but then I, I can be respectful to the beliefs of others in the same way. I'm not closing myself to learning, I'm not closing myself to listening, and I'm not closing myself to maybe realize that maybe I was wrong in some issues, and then I need to 
rethink about what I thought about certain things. I mean, hopefully we all learn as we get older, right? And we change our minds from learning from other people. There's nothing wrong with the fact that you thought some, that one of us may have thought something 10 years ago and we think something different today. That just means that we've been open to, to great ideas. You have traveled the world. You continue to travel the world. Um, and right now we're at a point where America seems very hostile, not not open to what you just said. Yet you still cho- chose to be an American citizen. You weren't born an American citizen. You chose to be one. It's amazing when I see so many Americans who were born here and are third, fourth, fifth generations that don't seem to want to be in a country with each other anymore. Why is it that you're still optimistic about this country? Well, I am because if something America has shown me that in... This, which is a young democracy, but then is one of the oldest democracies. We know that America has always raised from moments of darkness and, and adapting and learning from past mistakes, call it the Civil War, call it other moments. Mm-hmm. And America, in this sense, has always stepped up. And I believe America is ready to a big step up. We need to remember that sometimes, um, uh, no America, but the world, the history of humanity. We are all like ships that follow the shepherd. Shepherds, I learned, are very good people. I've spent a lot of time with shepherds, not only in Spain. I have a cheese company, a very small cheese company, and, and we have cows, and we have sheep, and we have goats, and I spend time in the mountains with the shepherds that produce our milk for the cheese. Unfortunately, in leadership and in politics, the shepherds sometimes are not all the time such a good people. But people, we are in a way good, but in a way naive. And when we follow leaders that all of a sudden they don't bring the best of us, but bring the worst of us, we've seen that humanity has shown at moments that the best angels pop up. But sometimes in history we've seen that the worst demons show up too. That's why I do believe that we need leaders that always try to bring the best of people, that try to build longer tables, that try to bring us together, not just bring us apart. Leaders that want to bring us apart, they should not have a space in any democracy, especially in America. What? When I tell people that I was going to interview you today and asked if there were any questions, somebody said, when are you going to run for office and what office will it be? <laughs> have you ever toyed with the idea of going into public service? I mean, you first of all, you are in public service. So have you ever toyed with the idea of going into politics? I, I think we are all in politics all the time, especially when we speak our mind. So politics is not running for office. When I became American, I was told by the immigration officer that made the swearing that becoming an American was not just showing the day you vote, the day you choose your representatives or your president. That being an American was to be active and not spoken every single day to create a slightly more perfect union, a slightly more perfect society. So in a way, we're all in politics all the time. What we need to make sure is that that politics uh, doesn't break us apart but creates a better community, a better society, a better America. <laughs> you sound like a politician not answering the question. Would you ever run for office? <laughs> I, I left school when I was very young. Uh, and that probably, uh, when, when, when you didn't graduate out of a university or 
that probably put you out of the game. What I know is this, that in, in many ways, uh, at times I try to be a leader uh, from the front when I have to. But I, I learned that good leaders also, they need to learn how to lead sometimes in a more silent way from the back. Me at times, I lead by the front. Sometimes I step back and I lead by the back. And, 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 and on that front, if one day it's a necessity for me to, to run, I live in Maryland, maybe. But I think the role I'm playing right now, which is what I know best, which is how food can bring America together, how food can be an agent of change in communities that sometimes they, they have no voice, how food can be bring hope after an emergency, after a hurricane, after a fire, after a tornado, uh, after an explosion in the heart of Beirut. Um, uh, this is another way for not me, but anybody to lead. I think everyone always asks me, Jose, how can I serve my community? You are already doing it by showing up every day to work, by raising your family, by being a leader in your church or your community service uh, group every person has an amazing way to contribute to our communities for better so in many ways every one of us serves in the community me i found my way which is through this ngo i i serve in two ngos one locally washington dc called this is central kitchen and then was central kitchen which we are more national international and this is the way I found myself, not only through my restaurants, but beyond that. I always said that I want to change the world through the power of food when I opened my company for profit. Who was going to tell me that this phrase, to change the world through the power of food, that can sound highly pretentious, actually has become a bigger idea that I found ways that maybe we're not changing the world through the power of food, but for sure we are showing up in the places people need a plate of food to have hope for a better tomorrow. And you know, big problems all have very simple solutions. Sometimes the bigger problems can be fixed by showing up and start cooking and start feeding. This is a way forward for a better tomorrow. The pandemic um, was terrifying, continues to be a terrifying place for a lot of uh, time for a lot of restaurants. People were very worried that, um, you know, the restaurants won't survive. Many didn't survive. Was the system broken to begin with that because there's something about the fact that the same number of people still had to consume the same number of meals during a pandemic for the most part. Um, And yet many businesses went out of business because they were just not in a position to reach them. Now, with everything getting back to normal, you find a lot of people don't want to go back to work in this industry. Um, was, was Were there some inherent problems in the restaurant industry that have been exposed by this? And do you think it's getting better? Well, there's many challenges we face in the food uh, business. Food is more than restaurants. Food is more than chefs. Food is an amazing 360-degree system of people that make it happen. Um, farmers that are forgotten voices often in our food system. Fishermen, Um, the immigrants that are undocumented, but that nonetheless every day pick up our food. The reason we've been feeding America is because we had 11 million undocumented. Mm -hmm. That pandemic or not, they show up every day 
to make sure that you and I we will have or food in the supermarket if we want to buy, or food delivered to our doorsteps in our home, in the comfort of our homes. Um, the system is broken in certain ways. Uh, immigration reform is something we had some people trying to pass for the last 30, 40 years, and it still is not passed. Mm-hmm. In this pandemic, we've, we've seen that those 11 million that nobody wants to fix, without them, we wouldn't be feeding America. Right. The same we can be saying in many other countries in Europe and around the world. So we need to be fixing problems that they're real. Everybody knows about them, but nonetheless, offshore is very easy to say all the problems we face is because they're undocumented immigrants. If you don't find a job, it's because an undocumented is trying to take your job away. Really? <laughs> People of America, there's plenty of jobs out there if you want to work in the farms of America, but nobody seems to want those works. Why? Because, yes, people are underpaid. People are making work long hours under the sun, sometimes without bathrooms, sometimes without breaks. And those are very hard working conditions. So it's not only in the restaurant industry. It's in the entire food system. When I say that sometimes the people that feed the world cannot feed themselves, that's real. This is a problem. How is it possible that the people that feed the world cannot feed themselves? We need to fix that. When we say that America is being great because we are able to put food that is cheap and affordable to the plates, I agree that. I think food should be afforded by, be able to be afforded by all. But when the food is too cheap, too cheap, too cheap, means that the people that are not getting paid are the people that are making that food possible. Yeah. So by having cheap food, which is something I will support only if by having food that is affordable for all, yeah, is not the same food that makes the people that make that food possible poor and hungry. So that's a moment of reality, of pragmatism that we need to fix, and we, I believe, can fix it. But mechanics in Congress, in laws, in the way we, we, we give value to things, nobody seems to have a plan to pay five, $600 for an iPhone. I have an iPhone. My daughters have an iPhone. Not everybody can afford an iPhone, but everybody seems to have mm-hmm. an iPhone. We are willing to pay for certain things, but we are not willing to pay for others. In the process, is certain people that suffer because we want to have a lifestyle that the system cannot afford without making somebody suffer in the process. So the restaurant industry... Is one that everybody's been talking about, but this is beyond the restaurant industry. This is in every one of our businesses, mm-hmm. in every one of, uh, that's a matter if it's slaughterhouses, if it's uh, trains, if it's bus yeah. drivers, it's if it's Uber thing drivers. If you want your free Amazon delivery, but you don't think about how much the driver's getting paid to get it to your house for I'm free. Thing. I mean, it. So it's saving your time, it's saving your life, boom, but the, that, um, that, that Uber driver that delivers the food to your home, then you learn later that he's barely making ends meet. Yeah. Uh, uh, and that's the reality. So how do we solve? I mean, the problem is complex, but then the problem is simple. That's why I believe that the best form of democracy and your intentions and the best form of democracy is about what is on your plate. But what is on your plate is something you need to be aware of. Mm-hmm. That's why knowledge is key. <laughs> if we all have knowledge, we can make better, smarter decisions 
by what is on our plate we know is part of the solution and not part of the problem. Knowledge is going to be key. So restaurants will go back to normal, but running restaurants is expensive. Running, we, we think like every restaurant owner is rich. We need to be training and giving knowledge to people in how to run businesses more efficiently. Know every restaurant owner, me first, knew everything about business. I had very good people that are better in finances around me than I am. We need to make sure that the restaurants thrive on their own, that the rent we pay is the right one, that the number of people we need and we uh, to hire to produce the foods so we can have happy guests mm -hmm. is right, that the systems to produce that food is the right one, that then we have restaurants and food businesses that they are sustainable and they can make money. So the little business owner that put everything they had to own that restaurant <laughs> can make a a living for himself, but also the people working with this small owner can also make a living on their own. So the restaurant um, business is a complex business. We need to remember we are more than 10, 15% of the workforce not only in America, but worldwide. If we include all the chefs, restaurant people, delivery people, farmers, the food industry is the biggest industry in the world. We need to be smarter in making sure that the way we feed people is what creates riches, not that the way we feed people is what creates poverty. And this is the big challenge. I do believe we can raise above those challenges, but it requires a 360 degree where laws are the right one, where subsidies are the right ones, why big companies receive subsidies to produce corn, but then small farmers in rural America don't receive subsidies to produce cabbage and carrots. Uh, I'm a guy that I'm very pragmatic. I don't want to wish anybody bad. I don't want, but we need to create a food system that is leveled down, where if you give tax breaks to the big corporations to produce food, I'm not going to say that's wrong, but I'm going to say it's wrong if those same subsidies don't go in the hands of the small farmers all across America, right. because then the system is broken and the system is unfair. If we are going to give subsidies to the big one, let's give it to the little one. And if not, better don't give subsidies to anybody and let the price of things be the price it is. Right. But cannot be that some thrive at the expense of others failing. This is not the way we're going to be feeding America and the world better. Um, you know, I, I could talk to you all night, and I'm sure that you, you have a lot of other things to do. So I, I, Well, the, the only thing I have to do next is sitting down with you and okay. start... Keep eating yes, more it, it, so the, Yeah, I'm eating some some crab here, which is delicious. This this is crab, right? It's not a tomato in there, right? <laughs> I just want to make sure. Well, you're talking, you're reading, you're doing, yeah. and he's not love light, but that's crab. Yes, <laughs> no, I, I I did recognize the crab. Just anybody, Alaska king crab. Yes, it's it, it's beautiful, chef. What's the what's the best thing that you've seen during these rough cup last year and a half that we've been? You you've seen people at their most desperate, but I'm guessing that you've seen people come out at their best as well. So I'd love to, to end this portion of our evening together with maybe a story about something really beautiful that you saw while you were out there feeding people. Well, I saw, I saw a lot of good things. Um, you know, I saw in a moment that politicians seems not to be talking to them. I live in Washington at the end of the day. Maybe almost 30 years later uh, there. I saw Tim Scott of South Carolina, Republican, shaking hands with 
then-senator, now Vice President Kamala Harris of California, supporting uh, a bill which was to feed America better using restaurants, the Feed Act. I saw Tim Scott coming to volunteer with us in one of our kitchens in D.C. The same way I saw Kamala Harris coming to D.C. Central Kitchen, the soup kitchen I've been part of almost 30 years. I'm volunteering there. We were building longer tables where we saw that food is actually something that brings America together, where a Republican and a Democrat were joining forces to move a bill forward, and many others in both parties. Davis in Illinois, a Republican, Hurt in Texas, uh, Thompson uh, in California, McGovern in, in Massachusetts. Shit, Republicans and Democrats coming together again on the House to support the same bill. Shit. And this brings me hope because I believe food can be this agent of change of bringing political parties together in a moment that seems is division and hate and, mm-hmm. and, 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 and I'm not going to support anything you support only because I'm in mean, the other side of the equation. Right. Um, at the ground level, uh, I've been in, in hundreds of hospitals. My mom and my dad were nurses. I spent a lot of time in hospitals because... My father and my mother had different shifts, and we had no, nobody to take care of us. So the hospital was the grounding, was where my brothers and I, we will be exchanged hands between my mother and father, <laughs> and I will spend time in the emergency room sometimes moving, <laughs> m- moving beds uh, here. What are you doing? I'm, I'm trying to help. <laughs> but they saw the best of America and the best of the world when nurses and, and doctors were going beyond their duty, trying to save a life. I saw that in India. I saw that in Spain, I saw that in Guatemala, in Honduras, in, and this gives me a lot of joy because I see that the best of humanity shows up when everybody's willing to do the extra step beyond what is expected from them. Um, I saw um, um, communities of faith or not, um, um, that's a, my, that, that happened in, in churches, in synagogues, or in mosques, uh, where they put themselves um, in the front lines of helping feed communities when their communities were in need of food. And this was beyond religion. And that tells you that I'm a Catholic boy and I don't go much to church. My wife does this on my behalf. But you may be a person of religion or not. At the end, we all have faith in something. And the faith is in take care of fellow citizens. And I saw that in every community across America. And that is what gives me hope that the vast majority of the people, if not all, believe in longer tables, no higher walls. Um, food is something that brings the world together. Um, we all try to show our best by sharing a plate of food with people sometimes we don't even know. So let's make sure that food is what keeps carrying this momentum forward. Where we know we have problems, we have to be pragmatic about realizing it. But that those problems are real opportunities to build a better America, to build but tomorrow, I'm, I repeated before, where we, the people, means all together, not right or left, but people that believe in the American flag, that believe in what America stands for, which is let's respect others the same way you want them to respect you. And let's make sure that those don't think like you are not your enemies, but people that are trying to bring a new way and a new point of view to your thoughts and your beliefs. If we do that and we believe in longer tables, hopefully tomorrow will be better than today. And we will, together, 
go through this pandemic and beyond and building and rebuilding not only America but the world where food will be uh, an agent of change and is what will keep carrying us forward where everybody will be fed and in the process everybody will be part of their communities people don't want our pity people want our respect and if we give respect in this case in the form of food I do believe we will go through this stronger Thanks so much, Chef. I always love talking to you. Um, And now I'm going to go eat with you a little more. So, man, thanks so much for your time. I'm looking forward to finishing out the evening. (laughs) Boom. Thank you. And now, the news. Again, we're keeping it short this week to accommodate that Jose interview. But I wanted to get a couple of quick mentions out before we hit the cannabis. First up, Voltaggio at Bellagio. The brothers V, Brian and Michael Voltaggio, who already have a steakhouse at MGM National Harbor, your old neck of the woods, oh, yeah. Rich. They'll be bringing an Italian-themed menu to harvest in Bellagio for three nights, January 14th through the 16th, 5 to 10 p.m. Um, I've already seen some of the menu ha- highlights. Smoked tuna carpaccio, macaroni salad um, with sea urchin cream, Whoa. blue crab, caviar, and Italian breadcrumbs. Um, rosemary focaccia, ink or truffle risotto you get the you get the picture of what they're doing there waffle cone cannoli is on this list um you know these guys did a pop-up at harvest back when roy elmar was still there back when they were having the guest chefs in they would do the carts in the lounge um the voltagios did something there i actually wrote about that in the review journal at the time I, i dined there I don't remember what I had, but it was good food. I remember that it was really good. Yeah, yeah. I never got up to their place uh, in Frederick, Maryland, which is a good 35 miles north of D.C., and and really psychically a world away. You literally go over uh, the hill or what passes for a mountain in that part of the country, and uh, Frederick is a town of about maybe 150,000, 200,000, uh, just far enough away from D.C. to not be an exurb. It's its, its own place, and... Uh, so it would really have to be a destination, and I never found uh, enough of a reason to go to Frederick. But they are all over D.C. a lot, and the place at National Harbor, I peeked my head in there once when they first opened, and it looked very gorgeous, and they got a lot of good good buzz there. So good on them. I mean, you've got to wonder. Yeah, uh, you, you really have to wonder. With Roy Alomar no longer in Harvest, big marquee names like the Voltaggio brothers already in the MGM Resort stable. Yeah. Um, Harv is sitting there and they have an affinity for the place. I mean, is it too far-fetched to wonder whether this is a tryout for something more permanent? Yeah, we'll see. I wonder if they ever want to get out of Frederick, too. <laughs> I mean, I don't know about getting out of Frederick. Frederick may be perfectly fine, but I mean, if you're working for MGM Resorts International, I got to think you want to be in Las Vegas, right? I think the same thing about Graham Elliott, you know? I mean, he's in um, yeah. Kotai. So, you know, I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised. I'd, and I know nothing. I'm not going on any kind of insider info, but I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, the MGM National Harbor does huge business. It is uh, just i mean i mean literally a quarter mile over the line into maryland from dc there are no casinos in dc there are no casinos or not yet in virginia right across the potomac river you have this gorgeous grand view of the potomac from the property uh so every it is a big destination place so yeah they don't need to really go anywhere when they have that place 
No, they, they don't, but uh, we'll see, man. It'd be interesting. Um, either way, great to have them in Las Vegas yeah. cooking. So, and they've always been very nice guys to me when I've met them. So I like them. Um, that's all it takes. I'm a simple man when it comes to that. <laughs> Fresh out of the inbox this morning, Chica is reopening December 26th. They've been renovated. Uh, Rockwell Group did the renovation over there. Um, my, this press release I'm looking at says Lorena Garcia will be available for interviews. So that she's still involved. So that's cool. Yeah. Uh, makes me very happy. So I don't have more on that. That's literally fresh off the um, press release. Also, um, returning to Las Vegas, remember Sam Nazarian and SBE <laughs> Entertainment? <laughs> There's a lot of creditors who do. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh. Ouch. too soon. Yeah. Uh, the folks from the short-lived SLS, um, they will be back on a smaller scale. Nazarian and SBE's Disruptive Restaurant Group will open a new, quote, sensual and elegant social space. Mm end quote, called Bar S. That's going to be in Mandalay Bay. I was just texting to find out an exact location. I'm told the old Red Square yeah. space. Yeah. So that should be very cool. It debuts New Year's Eve. They're promising craft cocktails, a lush lounge, and live entertainment. Looking at the cocktail list, I mean, you know you know, I have a dog named Ziggy Stardust, right? So yeah. the fact they have a cocktail named the Moon Age Daydream, I mean, that's just I perfect see. for me. You know, I, so, and if you're not a David Bowie fan, just go buy the album. Thank you, avoiding the P word here, too. The, I, I don't the even cocktail know program. Oh, I didn't talk about the program, Rich. <laughs> um, but you will be happy to know that the Starry Night has butterfly pea flower in it. I'm looking, oh just looking at this menu. Um, in the meantime, over at Nazarian's former local home, once again known as the Sahara, I just got another release. January 1st will be the grand opening date for their new Ultra Lounge, Azilo. Are you writing all these down, Rich? Uh, I'll copy and paste from your notes here. Now, oh, where no, where I, in the property no, will that for be? You. Okay. This was for you. I was just wondering. I, I'm just laughing <laughs> at the names here. Azilo and... Um, the S bar and yes. Yeah. So I don't know where that'll be. I either didn't get that far into the press release cause we had to record this or, yeah. um, but either way it's going to be in the SLS and it's opening officially January 1st. And one other tiny bit of news. Remember starlight on 66 at no. resorts world. No, they're changing the name, <laughs> changing the name. That's all. Don't okay. go getting crazy. Um, it will now be called the alley lounge on 66. That's yeah. I was told I pronounce it like alley. Like, okay. Like sliding down the alley with Sally or um, wow. anyway, it's A-L-L-E with a little line over the E. Yeah. Alley Lounge on 66. That's all I know about it for now. Yeah, you were and, up there in its former name and it's a, quite the nice little spot, right? Oh, it's gorgeous up there. One of the coolest spots. I mean, I, you put that up there with the Legacy Club and, yeah. um, you know, and I also really do enjoy um, the, what's the one next to Rivea on Mandalay and the House of Blues Foundation Room is great. Um, whichever the one is that's attached to Rivea yeah. at Delano that I can't remember. You know, there's there's a few of them, but yeah, Starlight, I think at the top yeah. of the top for if views. I, if man. I can go have a view like that, I'll endure a cocktail program. Um, okay, so now our cannabis reviews. I actually picked up two products this week. They're from Encore's Edibles Collection over at Zen Zen Leaf um, Dispensary. These are chocolates, and they are from a Belgian chocolatier. Ooh. That's what it just says, Belgian chocolatier. And I got two different varieties of them. They come in chocolate and chocolate sea salt, dark chocolate sea salt, I should say, and then milk chocolate. You can get 
both the dark chocolate and the milk chocolate versions, you can get in either a sativa or in an indica strain. So depending on what kind of high you want, if you're um, doing this to get high, because why else would you be doing it? Um, so I like that. I like that variety. They're also really nice. They come in the main bag, but then each chocolate, each 10 milligram chocolate is individually wrapped. So that's kind of nice. You don't have to worry about the freshness, resealing it. You don't have to use that really annoying Ziploc bag that all edibles yeah. use. I don't have to worry about that shit. Uh, once you open up the little individual packet, they've got a nice little diagonal line down them. You can snap them in half, take a five milligram dose. So, I mean, this hits all of the, um, the, the marks that I'm looking for in an edible. Then we get to taste because that's really what we're here to talk about. I find that the dark chocolate sea salt is really, look, first of all, I'm a chocolate snob. The darker, the better. Yeah. I'm one of these guys that looks at cacao content and I've toured cacao farms in the Dominican Republic. And, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm all about super dark, super dark, super dark chocolate. But that being said, my tastes work really well when it comes to cannabis edibles because dark chocolate masks the weed taste. Yeah. So you eat Imagine. this dark chocolate one and it tastes like you're eating decent dark chocolate you eat this milk chocolate one that i'm looking at and it tastes like you're eating a shrub that's been dipped in chocolate at the fondue place <laughs> so um that's that's my advice for you but I, I do like the product and that's where we go um so holiday plans rich we're gonna take a week off right we are yeah. we're gonna celebrate with our families we're gonna come back for the end of the year with a little bit of a greatest hits best of i don't know if you could call anything i do best or great but um it's going to be the coolest shit that i could find yeah the coolest i was shit you found looking at that and I'll, I'll tell you a couple of previews uh, real quick uh certainly our fun time on main street for vegas unstripped and the the most fun guy out there of course is uh, james trees and explaining the whole genesis of unstripped with a lot of FUs in there, because I think that was a big part of the genesis of Vegas Unstripped. Yes, you can't have Unstripped without FU. Yeah, one of our very first episodes in uh, the very venerable, um, God, I can't think of the name of it, it Piero's, with Piero's. the old school Piero chef Chris Conlon and new school Italian chef Gina Marinelli. Uh, I could not, not put in my uh, my biggest uh, fanboy of this entire experience so far and that is jamie tran and all her yes. uh, talk about uh, top chef portland being from portland and um you know one of my favorite guys in town and uh, you and he got into it uh, respectfully about your various differing philosophies of journalism and that's uh, scott robin of vital vegas now i'm looking for a couple of uh, contributions from you and we will have a greatest of all greatest hit shows yeah, you're making me remember how much fun we've had over the past 28-ish episodes and 29, whatever number we're on right now. So that'll be fun. Hopefully it'll inspire you out there to go back and re-listen to all of those full episodes as well. Yeah. So, um, yes, that'll be next week. I hope everybody has a wonderful holiday, whatever it is you celebrate. I hope you do it safely, joyfully, but most importantly, gluttonously. <laughs> Indeed. That's it for this episode of Food and Loathing. A huge thank you to Jose Andreas for one of the um, one of the coolest nights out I've had in a very long time, and some great material, and for sharing his thoughts. Oh yeah, and please tell a friend about Food and Loathing. Say nice things about us, especially on Apple Podcasts. But either way, we do want your feedback, your likes, your retweets, your constructive criticism. Find everything you need to know about how to do all that at Al's website theneonmohawk.com and look for things to happen on that site in 2022 
And of course, reach us direct by email, info at foodandloathing.vegas. With producer Rich Johnson, I'm Al Mancini. Stay hungry.